This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This week, we have episode 246 entitled, The Messiah in Psalm 16. We are continuing to work through the noteworthy Old Testament passages that have been viewed as offering predictive material about the coming Messiah. Thereby, they are giving us messianic prophecies. And early Jews and early Christians would look upon these passages and draw their conclusions on what the Christ the Messiah of Israel would look like, sound like, act like, and how the Messiah would relate to the God of Israel. So this week we'll look at Psalm 16 and the way in which the psalmist begs God for his protection from death and the ways that the New Testament writers would draw upon this, particularly to describe Jesus and his death. So here are some of the questions I want to explore in this week's episode. First, how does Psalm 16 define the God to whom the psalmist directs his worship and petitions? Second, how is the mortality of the psalmist illustrated, and what does this mean for his humanity? Third, how does Psalm 16 affect the New Testament authors in their understanding of Jesus as the Holy One of God? And lastly, how do the two citations of Psalm 16 within the New Testament contribute to our Christological understanding? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at God and death within Psalm 16. So this psalm is not very long. It is only 11 verses. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read and as we're reading, offer a few comments on the verses as we go along instead of reading the entire thing and then going back. Because I think most of the psalm is pretty straightforward. It doesn't require a lot of explanation, but there are a few passages within the psalm that I think really beg for us to offer some important insight and comment. So it begins in the first verse. It is a miktam of David, and the psalmist says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. And so we don't know if David is the author of this particular psalm. Uh, The reference could just indicate that this is something that David might say. It doesn't actually indicate that David is the author. It's going to become clear in the New Testament that those writers thought that the psalm was referring to David. But since we don't actually know who the author is, maybe it is David. Who knows? I think that I will just continue to refer to him as the psalmist. And so we can see here that there is a prayer and petition for perseverance and protection. Gosh, that's a lot of P words. Protection and perseverance. Preserve me, O God, I take refuge in you. Clearly, this is a 
moment of crisis. There is a tragedy that is actually taking place, and the speaker here feels that his life is severely in danger. And so he reaches out to God. God here is, of course, described as a single person because Jewish monotheism is unitary monotheism. God is described as a single person. I take refuge in you, second person singular, because God is one single person, not two persons, and most assuredly not three persons. Let's move along. Verse 2. I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. So again, the author is defining God. Here God is described with his personal name, Yahweh. And then the author says that you are my Lord. This is actually the word Adonai. And my Lord is an acceptable translation of Adonai. But it indicates that the author is still describing God as a single person. You, a second person singular, are my Lord, and I have no good besides you. Continuing to describe Israel's God with singular references, which is unitary monotheism in the strongest sense. Now let's look at a nice chunk of verses, verses 3 through 7. As for the holy ones who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another god will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. And then we get to verse 8. I have set Yahweh continually before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So here's an interesting reference that we see in a few times within the collection of Psalms. I think about four times we can see that the psalmist is going to describe Yahweh at the author's right hand. And this is not the sense of Yahweh sitting at his right hand. The sense of Yahweh being at the right hand of this particular author indicates that there is a ability to call upon Yahweh and that Yahweh would respond quickly and readily. Yahweh is an instrument and a tool to fight the author's battles and, of course, to offer protection and perseverance. That's the indication here from the imagery. And of course, you could see this in quite a few other psalms. Let's look at verse 9, which is the heart of the passage. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's verses 9 through 10. And so we can see here that in the author's claim that Yahweh is at his right hand and his petition for perseverance and protection, for Yahweh to be a shield to him, to be a refuge to him, he can 
confidently indicate that he is going to be protected from death. That's very important that in the psalm's original setting, the author was looking for protection from his own demise. He didn't want to die. He desired protection from death, protection from his enemies. And he can say that he is going to be re rejoicing and that his heart is glad. He can actually dwell in security. And the reason for this, we can see at verse 10, because Yahweh is not going to abandon his soul in Sheol. Sheol, of course, is the realm of the dead. It is the place of where people are buried in the grave. The Greek equivalent to Sheol is Hades. So Sheol is just the grave, the location of where all dead people go when they die, whether they be righteous or unrighteous. And you can see that it's the place of the grave because the parallelism in verse 10 indicates that it is a place of decay, which is quite natural for those who are dead. They undergo decay. I do think it's interesting that the parallelism indicates that the soul of the author is further defined as God's holy one. The Holy One is a further definition of a person's soul because the soul is not an extra additional thing that someone possesses as if they're a person and they also have a soul. They actually are a soul. The soul of a person is their entire person in their entire being. The author's soul is himself as the Holy One of God. And so by asking for protection... He can say that he's not going to die. He's not going to be abandoned to the grave. And of course, he's not going to undergo decay. And so it's important again to realize that the author is desiring protection from death. He's not actually dying. He's not looking for vindication on the other side of death. That might actually be his hope, but that's not expressed here in Psalm 16. And then he wraps up. At the conclusion in verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And so the psalmist is able to express confidence that the way of life, of course, on the other side of the threat of death is something that God is going to provide because there are pleasures in his right hand. And there is much joy in the presence of God. So this particular psalm was drawn upon by New Testament authors, I think in light of the fact that verse 10 indicates that the soul of the author is not going to be abandoned in the grave. It's not going to undergo decay. And we can see that, at least in the book of Acts, two different speakers are going to draw upon this particular passage to describe the resurrection of Jesus. They see Jesus as the one who is the Holy One of God. And in light of that, we can also look at the Gospels and we can see that they are now describing Jesus as the Holy One, the Holy One of God. And it's important to make that distinction because sometimes the God of Israel is described as the Holy One. 
but this particular person in Psalm 16 is God's Holy One. It says, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. It's the Holy One's Holy One. So when we see Jesus being described as the Holy One of God, it is a very particular and special person that is righteous, that is pious, that has piety, and is in a special relationship with God. But he's not confused with the God of Israel. Let's move to our second point, which is Jesus as the Holy One of God within the Gospels. So there are a few passages that talk about Jesus with this particular title, and I think that it's actually drawing upon Psalm 16. For example, in Mark chapter 1, we can see Jesus having an interaction with a demonic spirit. Starting in verse 23, it says, Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mark chapter 1, verses 23 through 24. There we have the designation, Jesus is the Holy One, but not just the Holy One. He is God's Holy One. He is the Holy One of God. Not to be confused with God himself, Jesus is God's Holy One. Very likely, drawing on Psalm 16. In Luke chapter 4, verse 34, we have a very similar passage. Where the unclean spirit says, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. A parallel passage in Luke 4.34. But again, Jesus is called the Holy One of God. He is God's Holy One. And then, Peter, speaking on behalf of the other disciples in the Gospel of John, at the conclusion of the bread of life discourse, we could see giving this confession in John chapter 6, verse 69, where Peter says, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. John chapter 6, verse 69. So the gospel writers offer confessions by other persons that Jesus is the Holy One of God, and there's no indication in the text that Jesus disagrees with this, or that he refutes it, or that this is a suggestion by the gospel evangelist that is to be discounted. Jesus is the Holy One of God, and it's very likely that this language is being influenced from Psalm 16. Let's look at some concrete citations of Psalm 16 in the New Testament in regard to Jesus. And for this, we have to turn to the book of Acts. Yes, Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, has drawn upon Psalm 16 in order to describe Jesus, his relationship with God, Jesus' mortality, and of course, the resurrection of Jesus. So in Peter's speech in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter offers this insight. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 24, this is under our third subheading, the use of Psalm 16 in Acts chapter 2. 
Peter says, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 24 through 29. And so here, Luke the Evangelist, who is summarizing the speech of Peter, drawing upon Psalm 16, and he seems to indicate that his opinion is that David is the author of this particular psalm. But while David functions as the speaker here, Luke the Evangelist in Acts chapter 2, verse 29, makes it very clear that David is not the ultimate person to whom this psalm is going to find its fulfillment. Because he says, look, David has died, he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So clearly David died. David is in the grave. David is in Sheol and Hades, and David has undergone decay. The point there is that this was looking forward to someone else, namely Jesus. And Peter in the speech has introduced this particular psalm by saying that God raised Jesus from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death. It was impossible for Jesus to be held in its power, indicating that Jesus is no longer in the grave. His soul is no longer in Sheol and Hades. Of course, he did not undergo decay. So the indication here is that Jesus' soul died, meaning his entire self died. There's no indication that, well, his body died, but something else didn't, or that he only died in humanity, but he didn't die in some sort of divinity. The indication here is that Jesus completely died. 100% he died. He was in Hades. His soul was deceased. And God is the one that raised Jesus up from the dead. Of course, indicating the very obvious distinction between God and Jesus. God raised Jesus because Jesus was dead. And so, Acts chapter 2 draws upon this particular psalm to describe the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that he was mortal and that he completely died, and that he needed God's assistance to rescue him from Hades, from the grave. And we can see this again in Acts chapter 13 in Paul's first speech in the book of Acts. This is our fourth and final point, the use of Psalm 16 in Acts chapter 13. So the Apostle Paul gives his first speech. Again, this is summarized by Luke the Evangelist. In Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 35, it says, Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers 
and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. That's Acts chapter 13, verses 35 through 37. And the function of citing this is very similar to what we saw in Acts chapter 2, which is that there apparently was a tradition that Psalm 16 was authored by David and was intended to refer to David. But it's very clear that David did die and that his body has undergone decay. So thereby, David must have been talking about someone else, probably the Messiah. And so these writers have to explain how this doesn't refer to David, but it does refer to Jesus. And Paul's speech is able to point out that David died. He fell asleep, which is the euphemism for death, and he was laid among his fathers. He did undergo decay, but he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Namely, Jesus, whom God raised, did not undergo decay. Again, distinguishing God from Jesus, indicating that God is the one that raised Jesus, and of course Jesus is the one who is the Holy One, who was in the grave and was rescued from undergoing decay. So there you have it. You have Psalm 16 being influenced into New Testament Christology, describing Jesus as a mortal human being, as a member of the human race, as someone who needed God's intervention to rescue him from the grave, to keep him from undergoing decay. And of course, this means that God is superior to Jesus if God possesses immortality and is able to offer life and immortality to Jesus in his deceased state. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue to work through the Hebrew Bible and examine the passages that influence New Testament Christology we will look at Psalm 22 and its influence on the New Testament authors and their expectation of the Messiah. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review online, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a financial donation, you can check out our episode description for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.